Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Let's go back to 1300 BCE, to Upper Egypt. The landscape is bleak and the surroundings remote in this region called Abydos. Even so, Abydos had always been a holy place. At this point, 3300 years ago, there's already several mysterious ancient structures that tower up from the desert. These occasionally attract pilgrims from the rest of Egypt. 100 yards from an ancient fortress in a humble peasant's home, a baby girl is born. Her father is a soldier and her mother a seller of vegetables who suffers from ill health. Her mother's ancestors had immigrated from Syria. As a result, she had an unusual appearance with blonde hair and blue eyes. Smitten with their love for each other and for their new little bundle, they named their baby Bentreshi meaning harp of joy. One day when Ben Treshi was still a child, her father is sent on a long mission to the capital, Memphis. While he is away, his beloved wife, Ben Treshi's mother, passes away. Upon his return, Ben Treshi's father is destroyed by grief. He has little time to grieve, however, since he is quickly deployed to Thebes. He surrenders his daughter to a local temple dedicated to the worship of Isis. They care for her tenderly, and she is inducted into the priesthood of Isis as a sacred virgin. Bentreshi grows into a young woman, one who is happy to forego all earthly pleasures in service to Isis and Osiris. Abydos, as a holy place, was frequented by the 19th dynasty pharaoh Seti. His majesty was building a magnificent temple adjacent to his Abydos palace. 
On a visit to Abydos to supervise the building, King Seti takes a walk in the beautiful temple gardens. During his walk, Seti happens upon a beautiful girl, our priestess, Bentreshi. Later, it was said that, quote, for him, she was like a fresh lotus carried by the north wind and offered her perfume to his majesty's nostrils, end quote. You can guess what happens next. Yes, they forget themselves and his majesty defiles the virgin priestess. They continue to meet in the beautiful temple gardens to consummate their love. Their secret is discovered before long as Bentreshi's belly begins to swell. Meanwhile, Seti leaves Abydos on official business. The chief priest eventually takes note of Bentreshi's pregnancy. In 19th Dynasty Ancient Egypt, the defiling of the church's property is one of the gravest crimes one could commit. Both Bentreshi and Seti would need to be punished in this life and in the next. The helplessness of her situation soon sets in. In despair, Bentreshi takes her own life. When his majesty returns to Abydos, filled with anticipation and hope at seeing his love again, he learns of her suicide instead. His grief is immense. He collapses in the garden where they had first met, tears rolling down his face. He lives on for some time, suffering several more traumatic incidents until his death in 1279 BCE. Upon Bendreshi's death, he never again returned to Abydos. His temple and palace sat unused for the rest of his reign. The sands of time blasted and crumbled them into ruins for the next 3,000 years. You might think that the story of Bentreshi and King Seti ends here, with their deaths. But you'd be wrong, at least according to one 20th century British woman, Dorothy Eady. Dorothy, who believed herself to be the reincarnation of Bentreshi, is the only reason we know about this story at all. Dorothy Eady's past life, which she discovered piecemeal over time, became her obsession. It shaped everything about her. She spent the first half of her life searching for her spiritual home, Abydos, and the second half making amends for Bentreshi's sin. Perhaps most shockingly, Dorothy, now called Om Seti, would resume Bentreshi's sexual affair with the King Seti 3,200 years after their deaths. More on that in a bit. Today, we're using the story of Om Seti as a gateway into the history of past lives in Britain and America. I'm Marissa C. Rhodes. And I'm Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons. Lauren, Hannah, Iris, Colin, Susan, Edward, Agnes, Denise, Jessica, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. Today's episode will be a little all over the place because, frankly, the history of past lives is sprawling, theoretical, theological, and a little wacky. But I've boiled it down for you. First, we'll recount the story of Om Seti. Then we'll dig into the intellectual and social history of past lives in America and Britain, including reincarnation, past life regressions, and some other stories of past lives remembered. Buckle up. Let's fast forward 3,200 years to 20th century England. Dorothy Eady was born in London in 1905 to Reuben Eady, a tailor with a penchant for show business, and his wife, Caroline. Dorothy was an only child. When she was three years old, she took what appeared to be a fatal fall down the stairs. Her parents summoned a doctor as she lay unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. The doctor arrived, checked her vital signs, and pronounced her dead. He then moved her little, lifeless body to a spare bedroom while he waited for the coroner to arrive. Sometime later, Dorothy shot straight up, awake and most definitely alive. While her parents were traumatized and endlessly annoyed with what they assumed was an incompetent physician, they were also ecstatic that they had their daughter back. But she was somehow changed. Her voice sounded strange, and she insisted that she wanted to go home. Her parents were perplexed because, well, she was home. The next year was difficult for her parents as they dealt with Dorothy's behavioral issues and very strange demands. When Dorothy was four, her parents took her to the British Museum for a fun family outing. As soon as the child saw the New Kingdom exhibits in the Egyptian galleries, she yelled out in joy and relief that she had finally found her home. Her parents were, understandably, alarmed, and it took everything in them to coax little Dorothy out of the Egyptian galleries at closing time. She spent most of her day lounging around on the sarcophagi and kissing the feet of a statue of Osiris. And this was 1909, folks, so uh, people were allowed to do that back then, which is kind of wild <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> At one point while reading a book, she became entranced by an image of Seti's temple, a structure in ruins in Abydos, Egypt. Dorothy immediately said that was where she lived but that it looked different from how she remembered. She remembered it having a beautiful garden and being surrounded by trees. Dorothy spent almost all of her free time at the New Kingdom exhibits in the British Museum. When she wasn't roaming the halls of the museum, she was reading about New Kingdom Egypt, teaching herself hieroglyphs, and dreaming of her home in Abydos. 
eminent Egyptologist E.A. Wallace Budge noticed her one day and took her under his wing as a sort of mentor. He noticed that she was bright and encouraged her to continue studying Egypt. He was amazed at her proficiency in learning hieroglyphics, which were extraordinarily complicated. He remained her mentor until she moved to Egypt as a young adult. At home, Dorothy's parents grew increasingly worried. At the age of 15, Dorothy claimed to have been visited in the night by the figure of a mummified pharaoh, Seti I. Some sources indicate that she also suffered from foreign accent syndrome, speaking in a strange pattern that sounded decidedly un-British. Such sources also claim that Dorothy was institutionalized several times on account of her nightmares, sleepwalking, and strange behavior. I don't know that Dorothy denied this, but it certainly was not a part of the story that she often told about herself, so that might be worth remembering. Though she left school at 16, Dorothy attended art school for some time, performed for her father's theater troupe, remember we told you that he had a penchant for show business, and traveled around as a student of life. By the time she was a young adult, she was living in London and working for an Egyptian magazine as a political cartoonist. Here, she met her future husband, Imam Abdel Magid. Magid was from a wealthy and notable Egyptian family. The two bonded over their support of Egyptian nationalism. The couple moved to Egypt in 1933, and they married in a lavish ceremony in the fashionable district of Cairo. Their marriage was doomed from the start. Unbeknownst to her husband and his family, Dorothy was being visited more often by the spirit of Seti I. Family members such as Dorothy's mother and father-in-law witnessed Seti's materialized form. Dorothy often worried what would happen if her husband discovered these nocturnal visits. Moreover, she was increasingly distracted by the Egyptian world around her, choosing to while away the days in poor parts of Cairo where the old folkways still remained. Her husband's family were aghast at her behavior. Dorothy became pregnant very early in her marriage and gave birth to a son who she insisted on naming Seti, a strange and taboo choice according to her husband's family. Escaping the inevitable decline of his marriage, Megid arranged to take a year-long teaching job in Iraq, leaving little Sati with his mother. Dorothy took advantage of this freedom. She moved to an apartment close to the pyramids at Giza. She began following the ancient Egyptian religion in earnest, bringing offerings to the gods every day. She visited the pyramids often, bringing her baby son. Dorothy spent so much time exploring the ancient structures that she befriended the archaeologists and laborers who were excavating in the area. They were impressed by her knowledge, intuition, and artistic abilities. Through these connections, she was hired as a draftsperson by Egypt's Department of Antiquities. Dorothy brought her son with her to work, so the laborers began calling her Om Seti, or Mother of Seti, which was the common way to address women in the local villages. Om Seti was the first woman to ever be employed by the department. During this time, her visitations from Seti were transformed. He took on physical form. They were able to touch, speak, and make love like any other couple. He called her Bentreshi, and the two essentially picked up where they'd left off millennia before. Ancient Egyptians believed 
that what we might call the soul had many parts. Seti explained that his astral form was able to take on human form. He called it putting on flesh, which is gross (laughs) sounding, um, by taking some of Om Seti's sekum, or vital force, each time he visited. Om Seti's and his majesties, we're going to call King Seti his majesty so we don't get mixed up with all of these names, right? So Om Seti's and his majesty uh, had long conversation about life after death. These conversations, many of which were recorded by Om Seti in a diary for posterity, are really interesting. Om Seti asks his majesty what happens after death. And he describes a variation of heaven, Amenti, that most of us would be familiar with. But it's much more complex and confusing than just all the good people go to heaven with their beloved family members and all the bad people don't. Um, For the most part, His Majesty affirms the principles of ancient Egyptian religion, but not always. He recounts meeting the god uh, Horus, but speaks less about the other gods. And he's also not all-knowing or all-powerful. He tells Bentrishi that during this brief brush with mortality when she was a child, a part of Bentrishi's soul came to inhabit the body of young Dorothy. Yeah, it's really interesting because she just writes every day in her diary about these visits and they just seem very typical and they're just like hanging out like any other couple would be. She's just hanging out with a 3,000-year-old dead person. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's just really um, amazing. One important conversation Om Seti had with His Majesty determined the shape of the rest of her life. He told her that they must make amends for his and Bentreshi's grave sin of the flesh, and that he'd consulted powerful authorities over the world of the dead. He informed her there was, indeed, a way for them to spend eternity together. To make this happen, he told her they must stop their sexual liaison, and that she must live the rest of her mortal life as a celibate devotee of Isis. He also informed her that at some point she would need to return home to Abydos. Om Seti did just that. They discontinued their sexual relationship, though his majesty still visited her regularly. She moved to a remote shack near the Seti temple ruins and lived there without electricity or running water for the rest of her life. Before long, her reputation as a folklorist and amateur Egyptologist had landed her another post in the Antiquities Department. She worked on rescuing and restoring the Seti Temple, cataloging the ruins, and reconstructing Seti's nearby palace called Heart's Ease. During her time there, she practiced the ancient Egyptian religion faithfully, bringing offerings to Isis and Osiris each morning. She continued to experience supernatural phenomena, always related to uncovering the ancient Egyptian past. In April 1981, Om Seti died in her sleep. During her lifetime, Om Seti was beloved by all of the Egyptologists, anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, and antiquarians who met her. In fact, even academics quietly relied on her knowledge of Abydos in forming their hypotheses about the past. Tourist groups often visited her home, eager to meet the ancient Egyptians who had been reborn into the body of a 20th century British woman. 
She was friendly to them, but didn't seem to particularly relish the attention. In fact, she never shared most of her supernatural experiences with anyone except her most intimate friends. We know about them after her death because she faithfully documented every day of her life in her diaries. Today, Om Sati has her own fan club of sorts. They have their own websites and social media groups where they discuss her life, read her books and books about her, and curiously dig into her many mysteries. This story is fantastical and eccentric, but believe it or not, past lives have a history. Dorothy Eady is not the only woman who has claimed to remember her past lives, though in many ways her story is exceptional, which we'll get to. In fact, this phenomenon popped up all over Britain and America in the 19th and 20th centuries. The earliest modern claims to past life memories come from mid-19th century spiritualists and other religious and intellectual radicals who floated between the margins and the mainstream religious culture, depending on the vagaries of religious trends. The theological underpinning of the past life phenomenon is, I think, obviously reincarnation. You can't have past lives if you're not constantly being reincarnated to live them. Reincarnation is most often associated with Eastern or Asian religions, especially Indic culture and Hindu and Buddhist theology. But there's also a Western or European tradition of reincarnation dating back to the ancient Mediterranean. Greco-Roman philosophers such as Pythagoras, Plato, Iambiclus, and Proclus treated rebirth at length. Origen of Alexandria, a Christian theologian living in the 3rd century CE, incorporated Greco-Roman ideas of rebirth into Christian theology. Religious studies scholar Lee Irwin claims that Origen was the first of many Christian theologians who would contest the Orthodox Christian theories of the afterlife. Many of them were dismissed as heretical by the church. Such was the fate of Origen's theology when, 300 years after his death, the Fifth Ecumenical Council declared his theories anathema, which is a formal curse by the Pope denouncing a doctrine. I just think that that is cool that the Pope has formal curses. During the medieval period, Gnostic Christian groups and Jewish Kabbalah continued to promote theologies of rebirth. Until the mid-19th century, ideas of reincarnation would be inseparable from religion. Not any particular religion, but religion generally. Don't worry, we'll get out of the theology weeds soon. We can find an earliest example of a semi-secular belief in reincarnation in Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon, 1769-1821, was a believer in reincarnation. He was convinced that he was a Roman emperor in a past life. Some writers believe that he may also have believed he was the reincarnation of Charlemagne. In 1809, he told papal emissaries, quote, Take a good look at me. In me, you see Charlemagne. Je suis Charlemagne, moi. Je suis Charlemagne. Tell the Pope that I am keeping my eyes open. Tell him that I am Charlemagne, the sword of the church, his emperor, and as such, I expect to be treated, end quote. Now, this is a claim made by popular historians and spiritualists today, but most academic historians are on the fence about whether Napoleon genuinely believed he was reborn. Even if he did, he was admittedly quite eccentric, so this hardly suggests any kind of mainstream belief in reincarnation in Europe. Reincarnation theory was first imported to America by George Keith. 
Keith was a Scottish Presbyterian turned Quaker turned Anglican who lived briefly in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area during 1688 uh, through 1693. The area surrounding Philadelphia and Jersey was filled with Quakers in the 17th century, and many are still there today. After a few years in the colonies, Keith broke from the Quaker church over their involvement in slavery and his reincarnation theory called soul revolution. Soul revolution was originally the idea of a German esotericist named Franciscus Mercurius van Helmont. Keith had been influenced by Helmont during his visit to England. Back in Philadelphia, Keith amassed a small group of followers who agreed with his unorthodox ideas. They co-wrote the book An Exhortation and Caution to Friends Concerning Buying or Keeping of Negroes. In the following century, Quakers came to incorporate abolitionism into their repertoire, but at this point in their organization, it was too progressive for them. As for reincarnation, the soul revolution theory split the Philadelphia Quakers until George Fox forcefully rejected reincarnation. Keith was excommunicated from the London Quaker meeting and joined the Anglican Church. Keithians were not the only radicals who were influenced by European esotericists to believe in reincarnation. In the 1820s, a highly spiritual, intellectual group called the New England Transcendentalists began to coalesce as part of a larger Unitarian movement. By 1836, the Transcendental Club in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was packed with influential American intellectuals like Ralph Waldo Emerson, George Ripley, Edgar Allan Poe, Amos Branson Alcott, Henry David Thoreau, and Margaret Fuller. The Transcendentalists were diverse and eclectic, but they tended to favor individualism, nature, idealism, and the pursuit of knowledge. They dabbled in Indian religion, adopting many of its tenets. Their belief in reincarnation, however, came from both East and West. Ralph Waldo Emerson articulates the transcendentalist view on reincarnation thusly, quote, The soul comes from without into the human body as into a temporary abode, and it goes out of it anew, it passes into other habitations, for the soul is immortal. It is the secret of the world that all things subsist and do not die, but only retire a little from sight and afterwards return again. Nothing is dead. Men feign themselves dead and endure mock funerals, and there they stand looking out the window, sound and well, in some strange new disguise, end quote so creepy. Under the aegis of transcendentalists, the American and British conception of reincarnation was untethered from religion. Scholar Lee Irwin puts it well, quote, the agency for reincarnation is naturalized in the sense that deity recedes and natural law implies a cycling of souls whose life conditions reflect past life experience. The goal of human life is not a disembodied ascent to a higher domain as an escape from physical life, but an emphatic embrace of physical life as the evolutionary locus of embodied consciousness. So basically, instead of regarding their bodies as prisons that their souls are waiting to escape, Transcendentalists uh, viewed indefinite and repeated physical lives on Earth as the goal. 
The human soul needs these many lives to learn about existence and evolve into better and better humans over time. And that kind of sounds like uh, Darwinian evolution, really. Right, yeah. It's interesting how these sort of religions coexist with science. So there's another example of that soon, too. So it is here in the mid-1800s New England among transcendentalist circles that Americans began to recall past lives. They treated these recollections, however, as intellectual curiosities to explore existence. Thoreau, for example, wrote in a letter to Harrison Blake that the night sky in New England reminded him of how it looked to him when he was an Assyrian shepherd. He wrote, quote, I lived in Judea 1800 years ago, but I never knew there was such a one as Christ among my contemporaries. And Nathaniel Hawthorne, too, I remember as one with whom I sauntered in old heroic times among the banks of the Scamander amid the ruins of chariots and heroes. As far back as I remember, I have unconsciously referred to the experiences of a previous state of existence, end quote. Thoreau believed that experiencing his past lives allowed him to contemplate divine truths. He wrote in his journal on May 24th of 1851, quote, our most glorious experiences are a kind of regret. Our regret is so sublime that we may mistake it for triumph. It is the painful, plaintively sad surprise of our genius remembering our past lives and contemplating what is possible. It is remarkable that men commonly never refer to, never hint at, any crowning experiences when the common laws of their being were unsettled and the divine and eternal laws prevailed in them. Their lives are not revolutionary. They never recognize any other than the local and the temporal authorities. It is a regret so divine and inspiring, so genuine, based on so true and distinct a contrast that it surpasses our proudest boasts and the fairest expectations." Louisa May Alcott also recalled past lives. She wrote that she, quote, thinks immortality is the passing of a soul through many lives or experiences, and such as are truly lived, used, and learned, help on to the next, each growing richer, happier, and higher, carrying with it only the real memories of what has gone before. I seem to remember former states and feel that in them I have learned some of the lessons that have never since been mine here, and in my next step I hope to leave behind many of the trials I have struggled to bear here and begin to find lightened as I go on. This accounts for the genius and great virtues some show here. They have done well in many phases of this great school and bring into our class the virtue or the gifts that make them great or good. We don't remember the lesser things. They slip away as childish trifles, and we carry on only the real experiences, end quote. The Transcendentalists were not the only heirs to European esotericism. While Transcendentalism was a philosophy or worldview, Theosophy is perhaps more properly called a religion. Theosophy was founded by Russian mystic Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society in 1875 with Henry Steele Alcott. Theosophy is an absolutely wild religion, but we really don't have time to go into that here. But essentially, their theory of reincarnation is worth noting because it's one way. Spirits are reborn time and again so they can progress forward, getting closer to perfection. 
But unlike other karmic theologies, theosophy does not allow for regression into lesser forms. It's all about progress. This progressivism allowed some intellectuals to reconcile theosophy with Darwinian science. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... What's important for us to know for this episode is that theosophy introduced Eastern religious culture and reincarnation specifically to Americans and Britons. This is best exemplified by the Akashic Records. These are mental records stored on a non-physical plane, essentially a compilation of every intention or action made by any soul or any event that ever happened, is happening, or will happen. Blavatsky introduced the concept, but never called them Akashic Records. The name came from theosophy practitioners and scholars who identified the same concept within Buddhist teachings. The concept of Akashic Records had a life of its own. By the time of Blavatsky's death, the records became a subject of fascination for many. Theosophist clairvoyants, many of whom teetered on the cusp of mainstream popularity, claimed that they could read the Akashic records. They made a living off books, lecture circuits, and professional reading services wherein they revealed the record's secrets. For example, in 1904, Austrian theosophist Rudolf Steiner wrote about the lost cities of Atlantis and Lemuria using the Akashic Records as his evidence. So let's be clear, though. Up to this point, the folks dabbling in reincarnation, past lives, and Akashic Records were often highly educated and fairly eccentric. So what about everybody else? Well, their introduction to reincarnation came to the mainstream through spiritualism. Transcendentalists and theosophists were often interested in spiritualism, and there was a lot of cross-pollination between the three. We've done many episodes about spiritualism and the Second Great Awakening, but in case you're new here, here's a summary. America and Britain both experienced extensive religious revivalism during the middle third of the 19th century. This revivalism spawned several utopian communities, religious practices, and even new religious groups, including Mormonism, Spiritualism, Seventh-day Adventists, and more. Spiritualism is a religion based on mediumship and communication with the dead. The Big Bang of Spiritualism was the Fox Sisters' communication with spirits in Hydesville, New York, through wrappings on the walls. Spiritism, just to make it more confusing, is a specific branch of spiritualism that has more European influence. Spiritists generally believe in reincarnation, while other spiritualists are less likely to ascribe to this belief. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that other spiritualists don't. It just means they're more they're more likely to believe in reincarnation if they belong to the spiritists part of spiritualism. Spiritists were influenced extensively by French esoteric writer Hippolyte Rivaille. Rivaille was better known by his pen name, Alain Kardec. Kardec wrote so extensively on mediumship that by 1857, he had constructed a comprehensive spiritist ideology. Rivaille believed that human spirits had the ability to choose their mother, their gender, and their new bodies. Of course, spiritualism is a peculiarly American movement. 
1860, there were about 2 million American spiritualists. But as we've demonstrated before on the show, spiritualism was international and revised ideas were received happily by many American spiritualists. Spiritualism had always been, and still is, an eclectic, inconsistent, and often contradictory network of beliefs. This eclecticism became problematic as spiritualism became increasingly institutionalized. The National Spiritualist Association of Churches, the NSAC, was founded in America in 1893. But only one generation later, the church split over the reincarnation debate. Reincarnation theory had become increasingly popular, and a sizable contingent of spiritualists were becoming disaffected with the NSAC's dismissive position in reincarnation. In 1913, NSAC members who believed in reincarnation left in protest to form the National Spiritual Alliance. Canadian-born medium Amanda Flower, her name's also shown sometimes as Amanda Flowers with an S, and other believers in reincarnation split off from the NSAC to found the Independent Spiritualist Association in 1924. This did not entirely resolve the issue of reincarnation for the NSAC, however, because in 1930, they were compelled to issue a public statement rejecting reincarnation theory. This statement was enraging to most members of the New York chapter of the association, where a belief in reincarnation had become the norm. The reincarnation issue also brought the issue of race into play. During the second half of the 19th century, revised French brand of spiritism had become increasingly influential in the Afro-Caribbean world. Revised theory on reincarnation integrated seamlessly with African Igbo traditions that had been preserved in the Caribbean. This blend, embodied in Creole religions like voodoo, Santeria, Candoble, and Umbanda, was imported into American cities by waves of Caribbean immigrants during the 19th century. Spiritists elicited criticism from white mainstream America for blurring the color line. Anglo-spiritual mediums often had non-white spirit guides and connected with black and brown historical figures in their past life regression. The NSAC chose to back their white members at the expense of the black and brown members, articulating an offensive position on race shortly after their rejection of reincarnation. And of course, this is not a coincidence that these two statements came out the same year. These policy statements led the New York chapter of the association to break off, and they created the General Assembly of Spiritualists that same year. And we want to point out that today, white medium's engagement of black and brown spirit guides or claims to black or brown past life smacks of colonialism and appropriation. It really kind of seems icky in our contemporary climate. But in the 1920s and 1930s, Anglo mediums were radical in their willingness to grant black and brown voices authority in the spirit world. This willingness to cross racial boundaries was exceptional in Jim Crow America. Despite the NSAC's attempts to homogenize and codify spiritualist theology, spiritualism resisted orthodoxy. 20th century spiritualism often resembled a wild mosaic of theosophists, transcendentalists, and revised beliefs, especially when it came to reincarnation. At the same time, spiritualist and spiritualist-adjacent practices like clairvoyance, hypnotism, and astrology were making headlines and becoming popular recreational activities. 
to a certain extent, there had always been a recreational aspect to spiritualism. As we learned in April's episode on the Fox sisters, American and British audiences clamored for the circus that was spiritualism during the 19th century as well. But 20th century spiritualism was impacted by a highly developed tabloid media, television exposure, and the most sensationalist of journalism. In this environment, mediumship, aura reading, and past life regression served as sites where these eclectic traditions battled and mediated Orthodox Christianity and American popular culture. For example, famous American clairvoyant Edgar Cayce gave a reading to a wealthy man named Arthur Lammers in 1923. Lammers was interested in researching the metaphysical, something he had in common with many people who sought out mediumship in the 20th century. Casey, a devoted Christian, gave readings in trance and purportedly had no memory of the messages that he delivered. On this occasion, Casey came to and was shocked to hear that he had substantiated astrology and reincarnation while in trance. And Casey objected. He said, quote, I said that? I couldn't have said all that in one reading. Lammers then clarified, no, but you confirmed it. You see, I have been studying metaphysics for years, and I was able, by a few questions, by the facts you gave, to check what is right and what is wrong with the whole lot of stuff I've been reading. The important thing is that the basic system which runs through all the religions is backed up by you. Indeed, Casey's stenographer recorded that he said the following, quote, in this we see the plan of development of those individuals set upon this plane, meaning the ability to enter again into the presence of the creator and become a full part of that creation. In so far as this entity is concerned, this is the third appearance on this plane and before this one as the monk. We see glimpses in the life of the entity now as were shown in the monk in this mode of living. The body is only the vehicle, ever of that spirit and soul that waft through all times and ever remain the same, end quote. Though it wasn't immediate, this interaction eventually transformed Casey's career. In an attempt to reconcile his readings with Christianity, Casey established several institutions designed to pursue metaphysical inquiry. Despite his best efforts, Casey's abilities continued to develop outside of the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. Casey secured a place in popular history with the publication of a 1942 viral magazine article about his work. He worked himself ragged, doing as many as eight readings per day through the 1940s. His organizations drew members from Asian religions, every denomination of Christianity, including spiritualism, theosophy, and Christian science. By the time of his death, Casey was known for identifying past lives, reading Akashic records, dabbling in divination, astral projection, and analyzing auras. Traditionalist Christians softened to the idea of reincarnation as they were intrigued or impressed by recreational performances by clairvoyants and hypnotists like Edgar Casey and Helen Duncan. In a sense, the pattern of Casey's life is replicated in American popular culture. Belief in reincarnation grew rapidly among Christians in post-World War II Britain and America. The best examples we have of this growing interest is the hypnosis hype. Hypnosis has a long history of its own, and it experienced immense popularity in the 19th century with hypnotists like uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, who hypnotized people in front of live audiences. 
But by the 20th century, hypnosis had earned bona fide credentials. From 1958 to 1987, the American Medical Association, AMA, encouraged hypnosis for therapeutic uses. In 1960, the American Psychological Association followed suit. At the same time, hypnotists' audiences got larger, and some began performing on television. So in this semi-medical, semi-popular environment, therapeutic and celebrity hypnotists experimented with various forms of hypnotic regression, past life regression being among them. This environment gave way to one of the most sensationalized instances of reincarnation. Colorado housewife Virginia Teague agreed to do a hypnotic regression in 1952. She was guided back to childhood and then birth by a hypnotist named Maury Bernstein. Unexpectedly, while under trance, Teague regressed further than she had anticipated into a past life. In an Irish accent and speaking in the first person, she relayed the life story of Bridie Murphy, an Irish woman born in 1798 County Cork. Teague described Murphy's marriage and death by a fall in 1864. She remembered seeing her own coffin and being reborn in America years later. And America was wrapped. The Denver Post published a series about Britty Murphy. Teague and Bernstein sold movie rights and published a book called The Search for Bridie Murphy in 1956. The book was a bestseller, inspiring numerous spinoffs, cartoons, and songs. This eventually inspired journalists to pore over every detail of Tiki's life in order to prove or disprove her claims, and they found a jackpot of inconsistencies. No record was ever found of Bridie's birth or death. She mispronounced her supposed husband's name, Sean. Uh, I guess she said it, Seen. She said C-N. Yeah, yeah. C-N, and yeah. it should have been Sean, yeah. Uh, the place where Bridie's husband had worked and the church they purportedly attended did not exist during Bridie's supposed lifetime. But the nail in the coffin was that Tiggy had a childhood neighbor named Bridie Murphy Corkle, whose life resembled the Bridie Murphy story. Experts suggest that Tiggy's stories were the result of cryptomnesia and not a past life at all. So cryptomnesia is just when you remember something, but you don't know that they're memories. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you don't remember that they're memories, but you remember the memories. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> Did I dream that or was it real? <laughs> no, me too. I think it's not the crazy, you know, it's, I think the, the cynical, the cynical people probably would have said that she just like made it up for attention or something. Um, but I, I think that there is a little bit more to it than just lying about it personally. Sure. Um, but there was no unringing that bell. Americans were increasingly convinced that reincarnation was plausible and they paid good money for past life regressions, spirit paintings, and other reincarnation friendly practices. In 1975, occultist Marsha Moore published the hit book Hypersentience in which she rejected hypnotism and past life regression, opting instead for the terms hypersentience and retrocognition. Moore's reports of retrocognition of retrocognition offered dramatic and lifelike narratives of the past lives of her subjects. 
But for every one of these examples, there are two examples of past life regressions wherein the sitter describes past lives as Cleopatra, Winston Churchill, or Hitler. Even more common is a crossover between history and myth. So many believers reported lives in the lost city of Atlantis that reincarnation scholars felt compelled to address this phenomenon. One theory was that the generation born around 1910 contained the souls of many former Atlanteans. Due to the cyclical nature of reincarnation, it was suggested that humans moved through time in cohorts. It would therefore be logical if vast numbers of people died in a civilization-ending disaster that many of them would appear around the same time in their new lives time and again, kind of like how everyone arrives to the checkout line in the grocery store at the same time. One 2009 Pew survey found that 22% of American Christians believed in reincarnation. For most of them, their belief was, and still is, reinforced by their lived experience. Believers report instances of deja vu or being drawn to a specific geographic location as evidence of past life experiences. Children are thought to be particularly sensitive to sensing their past lives. This was first noticed by the Akan people, whose tradition holds that children remember their past lives until adolescence, and then, again, by transcendentalists Bronson Alcott and Elizabeth Peabody, who were involved in experimental education of children in the Boston Temple School, and several of the children reported memory of past lives. In the 1980s, psychiatrist Ian Stevenson launched a large-scale study, so over 2,500 cases, into extrasensory perception, or ESP, in children. And he found that children who reported living past lives usually had no other evidence of ESP, but that they had various behaviors in common. They often displayed childhood phobias rooted in past life trauma. Most children reported violent deaths and identified birthmarks that matched the placement of past life injuries. Children who reported living past lives also tended to have insatiable interests based on past life experience, and they sometimes even rejected their own parents in grief for their past life parents. So we didn't get into uh, tons and tons of detail about Dorothy Edie or Om Sati, uh, but I've read more than one book about her, and I can say that this all sounds very similar to Dorothy Edie's childhood and all of that. So um, much like Dorothy or Om Seti, um, the children all claim to be ordinary people. Om Seti claimed to be Bentreshi, right, who was unknown to historians, not somebody who was important enough to be documented. Um not one of the children in this study claimed to be a notable figure in the past, not one, which is really interesting to me um, because I feel like most past life regressions, that's kind of how they go, at least based on my own personal experience when I went to a past life regression um, and tried it on my own. I was the only one who wasn't like, I was Cleopatra. I was at Atlantis, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that that sort of thing is very common. So it's interesting that with the children that wasn't, maybe they just don't know historical figures. I don't know. Or maybe they were telling the truth, Marissa. Right. Or maybe, no, that's, that's true. Or maybe they were telling the truth. 
Um, so like Dorothy's parents, uh, most parents of these 2,500 children in the study rejected their child's claims and demonstrated no belief in reincarnation, which is interesting. So it's not like these children are being told, oh, yeah, we all have past lives, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike Dorothy Edie, however, Stevenson found that most of the children in this study recalled past lives around the age of three, which that actually is when Dorothy began uh mm. Yeah. Knowing about her past life. But he found they didn't mention them again by age six. That's so fascinating. Um, and that's obviously not like Dorothy because she, yeah. you know, went on to have a sexual relationship as an adult with right. that historical figure. So, But in so many ways, Om Sati's case is unique. While many instances of past life recall contain an icky colonial element, so middle-aged white ladies cleaning ownership to a black or brown past, for example, Om Sati's case is somewhat different. She was a resolute and devoted anti-British, anti-colonial agitator in Egypt. She exhibited a genuine dedication to ancient Egyptian religion and kept her past life experiences mostly to herself during her lifetime. She claimed no other past lives, and Bentreshi was or is an unknown ordinary person, not Cleopatra or Pocahontas, right? Uh, She was an invaluable resource to Egyptologists and archaeologists who consulted her before digs or after their anthropological treasures had been unearthed. She was happiest living alone without modern amenities and among her treasured cats with very little attention and very few personal possessions. You know, whatever our thoughts are on reincarnation, um, I, for one, have absolutely no doubt that Om Seti believed in her past life as Bentreshi. Um, there's no way that she was kind of like making it up for attention or whatever. This is something that she wrote about and thought about every day of her life. And she didn't share it for attention or anything like that. Um, eventually, she became known as a folklorist uh, and, and you know, tour guides would sort of stop and talk to her. But the extent of her past life experience is something that nobody really knew about until she died. Um, so it's interesting to me because before spiritualism uh, and all of its cognate theologies, the Christian end goal had always been to kind of escape the bonds of earthly life and to live as one with the creator and some kind of non-physical world, right? It's like letting our souls be free. But it appears, and, and that's actually the goal of, of in Eastern religions as well, that do believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is like, you know, this endless horrible thing that happens to you until you're released into moksha or nirvana or whatever, right? So that's that's a really common way of looking at life. Um, but it appears as if in the past hundred years or so, um, that the goal is increasingly a do-over. People want a new human life where one can right wrongs and rectify past mistakes, even if they're unaware that that's what they're doing, Mm. (laughs) you know? Um, So to me, this suggests that as humans, we'd rather be living life alive and on earth than than anywhere else because we keep Mm. coming back Mm -hmm. for more. Um, And to me, that's really interesting because – I'm sure many people can agree that life is really hard. (laughs) So it's interesting that we have become conditioned to, as a society, and I'm not, when I say we, I don't mean everyone, but uh, a large contingent of us have become conditioned to wanting to relive our lives. Um, That's just something that's super interesting to me. Well, it's, 
Yeah, it's a beautiful optimism. Yeah, it is. Like, oh, it, you know, if it doesn't go well this time, there's always next time. <laughs> um, yeah. It's sort of interesting that that has sort of permeated popular culture. And I mean, even, you know, I uh, I follow this one woman on Instagram who does a lot of um, gross sort of um, – gross medical stuff that I'm really interested in, but she also has a second account and it's about like rebirth. And I don't know if she like actually believes in reincarnation, but it's usually pictures. It's kind of like a Marvel marveling at genetics. So it's pictures of like grandchildren and grandparents who look identical and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and I have uh-huh. to tell you that <laughs> almost every person on that page, except me, like 100% believes in reincarnation um, and, and kind of sees that as the reason why this happens. Um, and Mm. so I think, you know, even my own family, my aunt passed away and shortly after she passed away from brain cancer, um, my aunt and uncle, a different aunt and a different uncle, uh, found out that they were pregnant and they thought they couldn't have children. And then they had a baby and the idea is that, you know, that that's the reincarnated sort of, yeah. I mean, no one says that exactly, but that's like kind of, um, what people are thinking like, oh, you know, or like. Donna went to heaven and sent Donna a baby or something like that. Um, mm. So it's, and they're not even remotely um, uh, spiritual people, I wouldn't say. So it's just really interesting that this has become part of our sort of popular lexicon of how we talk about death. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, this made a lot of, I mean, you were worried about it being all over the place, but I, I think you, I think you were able to put a narrative together in, in a way that, that makes sense. So this was good. All right, so please visit our website, digpodcast.org. You can get show notes and transcripts there. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com backslash digpodcast. And then you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, dig underscore history on those. Um, Please check out our resources for educators. We have lesson plans and different ideas of how you can incorporate podcasts into your classrooms. Uh, And... Right now we're having a merch sale too, I think. So check out our uh, Tee Public store. Um, they have kind of regular sales. So you can buy some cool t-shirts related to our brand. That's all I've got. Yeah, sounds good. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you. Russian mystic Helena Blavatsky. Blavatsky? Blavatsky. Blavatsky. Something Omsa T trained trained or claimed to be Ben. I don't know that Northy, Northy. Oh my God! Until his death, death. No record was ever found. Found. The chief priest eventually takes note. Of this. Why did I just forget how to say her name? Bentreshi. This did not entirely resolve the issue of reincarnation for the NSAC. However, because in 19. 19- oh wait, no. <laughs> had a childhood neighbor named Gritty Murphy Corkell, who's yeah, Corkle. Corkle. Gritty Murdy, Bridey or Bridey? it's Bridey. It's just spelled differently. Okay. Unexpectedly, while under trance, Teague regressed further than expected. Wait, not too much expectedness. Despite his best efforts, Katesy's... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> <coughs> Just, just stay. I'm on. It really is. Just climbing all over, you know, these priceless mummies. Hearts and hearts Hearts ease. <laughs> it's all one word, so it's weird. Called hearts ease. Hearts ease.
Heartsies. called Heartsies. Heartsies. Well, is it yeah, really Heartsies? Heartsies? It's Heartsies, but just okay. I don't know. For some reason, when it's translated, it's translated as one word. Can't, can't tell you why. I don't know. Called Heartsies. Heartsies.